to the Jerusalem Lights podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, Jim, and shalom to all our listeners. Shalom, Rabbi. Can I say a, a, a Purim Samayach already? Is it too early? I guess it's not, is it's, it? Ne- it's really never too early, especially when we realize that the themes of Purim are themes that we want to live with really all year round. But yes, this is the week, the week of Purim. And in fact, in Jerusalem, which is which has a special um, classification of a walled city, like Shushan, the capital of, of uh, ancient Persia. So most of the world observes Purim on the 14th of Adar, but Jerusalem uh, observes what's called Shushan Purim, which is the 15th of Adar, which this year comes out on Shabbat. So here in Jerusalem, Jim, we have a very, very unusual phenomena this year. It, it happens rarely, only every few years, and it's called a triple Purim. A triple Purim in that, in that the, the commandments of Purim are divided between three days. Some are done on Friday, some apply to Shabbat itself, and some on Sunday. So what happens is this, on Friday, we... We'll be Thursday night and Friday. We will be reading the scroll of Esther, which, of course, we have a commandment to hear together, the scroll of Esther. And on Friday, we will be giving the gifts to the poor, which is one of the commandments actually outlined in the story of Esther. On Shabbat, we will be mentioning the concept of Purim in our in our prayers for that day because that's actually the date. And then on Sunday. We will be having the festive meal and giving the the gifts of of portions of food to our to our neighbors and friends. That's the, called the mishloch manot. So it's a very very unusual kind of um, configuration this year, and it happens every time we have this this particular type of year where um, Passover also falls out on a Saturday night. So the eve of Passover is Shabbat. There's a certain kind of interesting. Um, um, kind of like um, unusual, unusual lineup of the way the days work out in this particular calendar year. So here we are getting ready for this amazing experience of of the, uh, if you'll pardon me, the high, the high of Purim, the yeah. spiritual high of Purim, being spread out over three days. It's it becomes like a very extended kind of um, spiritual odyssey. Yeah, over these three days, and of course, the other dynamic is is the uh, the political dynamics in that this will be the first Purim that there will be these sanctions in place that uh, there's a curfew, a night a night curfew. Yes, and it's the the fact is that last Purim was kind of like the beginning of the. Um, Oh, that's of right. Of yeah, the, of all of the rules here. Well, Purim was kind of like the last day that families were together. It had it was already starting to to get going. The whole pandemic. Yeah. Um, I was, if you remember, uh, I was there. I was, I was in Eretz Israel. I was in Yerushalayim uh, last yes. Purim. Yeah, so yes. I was there just as it was uh, as the whole COVID thing was just beginning to start. It was breaking, right? So and the and the whole thing kind of came to a head on Purim. And uh, so it's a year. It's a year now, and and um, here we are still, basically dealing with the lockdowns, and and of course now there's the, uh, shall we say, the euphoria in Israel that not everyone agrees with about the vaccines, and uh, that's another story altogether, isn't it? It is. And, uh, <laughs> and there are so many things, Jim, in the, in in the in the Purim story. There are so many universal themes that I think apply to to everyone to Jews and Gentiles 
and it's it's really such an amazing time and and um one of the most beautiful ideas about purim is the fact that uh our sages teach in a in a in a very uh, kind of esoteric um vein that in the future right in the time of the of the redemption the ultimate redemption time of the rectification of all mankind when hashem's name is one and he is one and it all gets settled right in that time so uh, let's call it if you want to call it the messianic era or later than that but there's a tradition that all the holidays are going to become canceled they're going to become nullified they're not mm -hmm. going to be rele relevant anymore in other words the light that reaches us from the observance of these special days is going to be of such a nature all the time that the the holidays are going to become sort of like irrelevant. This is uh, obviously obviously sounds whimsical. This is a a vision of some sort of future reality when the holidays will not be relevant anymore. Except the sages say, and this is the deepest teaching in the world, right? That when that happens, that that will all be true with the exception of Purim. That Purim will always be, be observed, even when the other holidays are are already uh, no longer considered to be uh, viable or 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 uh, you know of or significant. There'll always be a Purim, and obviously this is something a, a truth that's being conveyed here uh, on a very deep deep level, whether it's literal or not. And and what it's what it's actually referring to and alluding to is the idea that the the revelation of Hashem's palpable, honest, authentic relationship with us that's the, the degree of the intimacy, the love that he has for his creation that's hidden all the time, you know, but revealed on Purim, it's going to be so powerful and it's going to be so real and it's going to be such a different world that that will be the only level of understanding and revelation that is applicable to that new reality of the fixed world, you know, mm -hmm. Purim. It's always going to be Purim, the light yeah. of what we realize on Purim. And what is, so what is it that we do realize on Purim? That's what I want to know. Because the other thing is, you have to understand that everybody knows the Torah teaches us that Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the awesome day of purification, of the sealing of the judgment, the day of repentance, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, is the holiest day of the year, right? And it's like, it's a very rarefied atmosphere. You know, we're fasting, we become like angels. It's a 26-hour fast, and we and we are just new, cre new creation. We just start all over again with that incredible spirit of, of uh, cleansing, Yom Kippur. But mm -hmm. yet, our sages tell us in a very, very deep vein, that Yom Kippur is only a little bit of a glimpse of a taste of Purim. And right. that Purim is really the highest. And that the name actually means, the, the actual name of Yom Kippur is Yom HaKippurim, ha which literally can be read as the day like Purim. Yeah. Well, they, they're, way, they're alike in that uh, you, have this, you have this lot, you have lots thrown. You, you you have Haman who is who is casting the lot to to discover you know the day that is is uh, most uh, you know propitious for him to to uh, bring about the the murder of the Jews and then on this by the same token on Yom Kippur you have the high priest uh, casting lots to see which of the goats will be uh, the goat that is uh, uh, dedicated to the Lord and the one who is who is sent off. Uh, for Azazel and and cast off of a mountain. 
So that is so deep. But you you are saying something that huge books of the deepest thoughts in the world have been written about the secret that you just told all of our listeners that there is an inner dimension. First of all, Purim, Purim means in ancient Persian, it means lots. Because yes. the whole idea of what, of what Haman was doing was it was a type of divination. Mm -hmm. He was actually throwing lots, as it were, to determine the best day that would be uh, auspicious to kill all the Jews. And you know, the thing and, is, it was, it was, it, what's interesting is it wasn't. It came out to the month of Adar, which right. he thought was a great sign because he knew that Moses passes away in Adar. Exactly. So figured, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, it must be stacked against them in Adar. And and because it was like he, he felt like it was the least of the months. There weren't any festivals going on. And of course, uh, thanks to him, you now have a festival in in, <laughs> in Adar. But the other thing was, yes. is that the, I don't think people realize that when he was casting lots, it was to see which day was actually good for him so that he could yes. succeed in what he wanted to do. Yes. And uh and it's, it's, it's interesting because all the other holidays are, are named for something very positive. Let's say Hanukkah is named for the respite of, uh, uh, of um, the war of the Maccabees against our enemies, Hanu Chavhe. They, they rested on the 25th day of Kislev Pesach. Is about skipping over. Sukkot is named for the the booths. Shavuot weeks is the culmination of the counting of the of the seven weeks, but you know to receive the Torah. But Purim is actually named after the device that the enemy wanted to use to annihilate all the people. And like you said on Yom Kippur, the high priest is basically he's got these two goats which are absolutely identical, except that he's going to be assigning them opposite fates. One yeah. is going to basically ser serve the forces of life. And the other is going to be um, given over, as it were, to 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 the uh, to the other side, right? Not not that there is an other side, but the idea is that one rises the and one fails. In other words, this, it's it's a, an act that shows that uh, Hashem is basically in charge of everything. It's like a high level of consciousness. This 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 casting of lots on Yom Kippur, where we are just completely bound to Hashem and and throwing our faith as it were in, into his hands However, and it, point, it, it, it out, points which... back it points back to haman's act because it showed that even though haman cast these lots he because because showing his his uh his roots to his his ancestor amalek who uh, were all about well stuff happens there's everything happens by accident it happens by chance and what happens actually is that with Haman through those dice or whatever he used, uh, it was Hashem controlled how those dice landed. And, you know, by the way, even the, there's even an Assyrian, an Assyrian, and an Assyrian uh, ruin, uh, they found a, a square. Uh, it looks like a dice. It has cuneiform on it. And it has a verse from the Assyrians talking about that. Uh, we hope that, uh, that the gods will allow our lot to, I'm paraphrasing what it says on the, on the it's, it looks like a dice and it's called by the Assyrians, a Puru. Wow. That is so amazing. And I know Jim, that you wanted to also share with us some, some, um, yeah, some of the, some of the archeological, some Purim. of the historical, but, but I think as you and I talked about, maybe because there are listeners who are just joining us who, who never read the Megillah. 
And so we're, you're going to you're going to give us the, the kind of Reader's Digest narrative and then we'll come back and we'll 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 do our we'll share our commentaries and our own research on on, on uh, Megillah. Okay. That's a great idea. Let me do that, because the fact is and I just met a very beautiful man yesterday uh, that I met with on Zoom, who is a listener. And he was telling me, you know, he just recently is coming to Torah from Christianity. And he told me that Christians don't really know the story of Esther and, and that uh, he wasn't encouraged really to study very much of Tanakh at all. And um, the fact is that there are so many universal themes in the story of Purim that actually reverberates so much with what's going on in the world today that it is more than uncanny. It is staggering. Uh, the secrets of Purim and what, and what Hashem is telling us today. But you're right. Let's take a moment and, um, and let me kind of paraphrase the Purim story for all of our listeners uh, about wh what, what it is that this is all about. So first of all, you know, the story of the, the scroll of Esther opens up on this incredible banquet. Actually, Ahasuerus first held a banquet for six months for his officers, 180 days. And then he held a banquet for approximately 18,000 people, the residents of Shushan, for another seven days. But we have to understand what all of this was about was that it was basically a celebration of the fact that the temple was not being rebuilt. You know, Cyrus had given permission to rebuild the temple, but then there was a lot of subterfuge of, of people that were trying to derail it, Israel's enemies. And Jeremiah had uh, given predictions about the first temple being destroyed. That came true. And then Jeremiah also prophesied that it would be rebuilt after 70 years. And, the, and that hadn't happened. Now, Ahasuerus, who, by the way, was someone who seized power because the, the real, he was an upstart because the real royal blood was his wife, Vashti, who was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar who had destroyed the temple. Right, right. So, so um, 70 years had passed. There was no sign that the temple was going to be um, rebuilt. Ahasuerus was celebrating because that is like um, polar opposites. In other words, he realized that if the temple would be rebuilt and Hashem's unity in the world would be, um, revealed, then people like him would not be able to continue their scam. And it's the same thing today. In other words, it's it's like there are there are forces in the world that want to be in charge, that want to claim the power for themselves. And Ahasuerus was was this type of, of ruler, and he did not want the temple to be rebuilt. So he held he held this incredible banquet to celebrate, and. And and he and the banquet was actually a mockery of the temple. Right. I don't know if people are aware of it, but but he actually was wearing the garments of the high priest. He was actually serving the dishes at the banquet out of the plundered vessels of the holy temple. He was parading these vessels every day. He would take out different vessels of the temple at this at this party. And unfortunately, the Jews of Shushan were at that party and they sat there and they uh, had to watch the total degradation, not only of themselves and of all that they hold holy, but of the God of Israel. And there was only one person who didn't go to the party. And he was, I'm sure, 
marginalized, demonized. He was probably called a conspirator. He was probably uh, called a person who espouses fake news. But he didn't go along with it. And that was Mordechai. Mordechai, the Jew, he did not bow down to Haman. He did not go to that party. He was not a small person. He was actually a member of the exiled Sanhedrin and a great, great uh, Torah scholar, a great righteous person, but all the other members of the Sanhedrin, all the other rabbis of the generation, they all went to that party because they're like, well, how could we not be there? You know, like yeah. we're, I'm, I'm one of us, we're, yeah. we're in, we're in, we're in, we're in the system, you know, it's like, it, and so the party is described in, in, in incredible terms, both in the verses of the scroll and in the oral tradition that sheds light on, on the backstory of, of what's going on in the backstory of Purim basically is that this was all about a struggle for the rebuilding of the Holy Temple to wake the Jews up in making them realize that their, that their lack of enthusiasm for returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the Holy Temple is the cause of this, of this terrible decree that was made against them. Anyway, so at the party, Ahasuerosh basically uh, orders his, his um, wife, uh, Queen Vashti, to appear naked. Mm-hmm. Before his guest, she was very beautiful. That's why the verse says, "In her in, wearing her crown, wearing her crown, but nothing else." She refused, and uh, was uh, executed for her insubordination. But then a new um, a um, a search is launched for a new queen throughout the empire, and 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 agents and scouts uh, travel throughout the land and, and and round up all the beautiful women, and. Uh, Every one of them had a chance to to um, excite the king, to interest the king. And uh, if if uh, the evening passed and the king was not interested, then the girl was sent to the king's harem, where she, I guess, lived in an amenity and, and, and forgotten about. And amongst all these contenders was Esther. You know, Jim, Esther, the word itself means hidden. Isn't yeah. that unbelievable? There's a verse in Deuteronomy where Hashem says, and at that time, I will surely hide my face. And the word is, it's a, it's a double language in that verse. Astir, uh, astir, I will surely hide my face, a double covering. So Esther is an orphan. She is raised by her uncle Mordechai. Um, the, the conventional wisdom is that she was actually married to Mordechai. Right. Esther is snatched by these, by these talent agents, these beauty scouts. And, and Mordechai told her to, to conceal her Jewish identity. The king is totally smitten with Esther and chooses her after his his long search, four-year search for the queen. I'm paraphrasing here and I'm I'm just moving through the story, okay? Haman. Haman is a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite king, whom King Saul spared when he received the commandment through the prophet Samuel to destroy the nation of Amalek. He had mercy on King Agag. And King Agag had a descendant, and that is Haman. Haman, who was the one who advised Ahasuerosh to execute Vashti, he became chief advisor to the king. Um, king Ahasuerosh is a um, very neurotic, very paranoid leader who is constantly looking over his shoulder because he seized power. And commensurate to his level of neurosis, Haman is the most nuclear narcissist in history. He is absolutely power hungry and power drunk. It's all about him. Haman is such a narcissist that he orders all his all the citizens to bow down 
to him. And it was also deeper than that because he also had like an idolatry tied around his neck and he wanted everyone to bow down to it because he, he was a practitioner of, of these arts. And so Mordechai, he refused. He refused to bow down because he, he was only loyal to Hashem. Haman was infuriated, infuriated. And the revenge that he saw was not just to um, destroy Mordechai, but to destroy his entire people. And so, like we said, he cast lots, which are actually called Purim in, in uh, the plural, to determine the best date to, um, to kill all the Jews. He bribes Ahasuerus to issue a royal decree because only a king can issue the decree. And so uh, he worked out that 11 months from the date of the, of the casting of the lot, the 13th of Adar, the uh, time when all the citizens of Persia will be encouraged to take up arms against their Jewish neighbors and exterminate all the Jews. The edict goes out, the Jews don sackcloth, they cry out to God. And Mordechai instructs Esther to approach the king, and confess to her that she's really Jewish and beg for mercy. Esther says, you know, I don't know if I can do that because um, I should wait for him to invite me at his own initiative because everybody knows that nobody, including the queen, is allowed to just enter into the king's chamber unbidden. And that means certain death, unless the king is in a very good mood and he extends his golden scepter. And then that means that you can live and you can approach him. But Mordechai insisted that Esther goes, and she's and he says, he says there's a time for such a time as this is why you rose to power, and if you don't if you don't do this, uh, someone else will do. Hashem will use someone else, and you'll be forgotten. So Esther says, do this, and they're communicating all the all the while through Hatach, who is really Daniel. Yeah, right. And uh, Esther instructs the Mordechai that all the Jews should fast for three days. <clears throat> By the way, this took place during Passover. Right. Excuse me. We actually commemorate the fast day of Esther on the 13th of Adar before Purim starts, but it was actually the th that three day fast was actually took place during Passover. So she's preparing for her, herself to approach the king and she dons her royal attire. She enters. Ahasuerus was very moved by her presence and extends the scepter and says to her, you know what, what, what is it that you want? She, he knows it must be important because she wouldn't have risked his li her life. And he says, and he says, until half the kingdom, until half the kingdom, up to 50% of the kingdom will be granted to you on your request. But instead, all she does is she invites him to, to, a, to a party, him and Haman, come to a, to a, a wine party that, we're gonna, that I'd like to make for you. And, and again, I told you that everything in the background here is really about the Holy Temple because the truth is that 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 Ahasuerus suspected that this was her motivation, and that's why he said until half the kingdom, because half the kingdom measuring from Shushan is Jerusalem, and half the half the hundred twenty cents. So he was basically saying, "Ask me anything, just don't ask me About. to rebuild the whole temple." <laughs> right. So they come to the party. And uh, again, um, King says, this, this can't be it. There must be more. Tell me what you want. And again, she said, come to another party tomorrow. There's so much going on here between the lines. And, I, and, and before I forget, I want to tell all of our listeners that my holy wife, the, the Rebetzin, Rena Richmond, gave a beautiful, beautiful, deep class on Zoom this past Sunday about 
um, the scroll of Esther, the story of Esther, insights into uh, Esther and Achashverosh and Haman, amazing, amazing psychological and Kabbalistic insights. That class is recorded and available to whoever writes to rabbi at rabbirichman.com if you'd like to download and view this beautiful class that uh, Rebetzin gave about, uh, about Purim. So I'm being reminded of some of the amazing things that she said there. For example, um, Esther was basically aware of who Achishverosh was and who Haman was, and she was playing them against each other also. She was playing, playing Achishverosh's jealousy. You know, he was thinking that maybe Haman and, and Esther were having an affair. He was thinking maybe there's a plot against him. All sorts of things are going on here. It's really amazing, the, sub, the subterfuge. So again, uh, Haman is just is literally inflated like a balloon with his self-importance that he's getting these exclusive invitations and he could he can't even believe it, you know, he can't contain himself. But yet on his way home after receiving the second invitation, he sees Mordechai. Wow. And so he just goes into this incredible rage and he doesn't even await him anymore. He doesn't want to wait until, until the day of the lottery. He wants to do it now. So he, he wants to hang Mordechai now, you know? So he, he prepares this gallows. But the thing is that only the king can execute someone. He needs permission. He's not, he's not really allowed to do that, but he built it and he figured he'll get permission afterwards. So now he builds it. Then he's going to go and ask permission to hang Mordechai the next day. But that very night, this is where the story starts to really churn <laughs> and, uh, and start to you know, get into all of these incredible hairpin turns, what we call turnabout, you know, and, the, and what do you call it? The table's turn. Yeah. The same night, the king has insomnia. And so he wants someone to, to read to him. So he asks his, his uh, attendants to read pages from the, from the diary. And so they read a report that was from a long time ago that Mordechai had saved the king's life by exposing an assassination plot. I didn't even mention that. That's in the very beginning of the scroll. And it's considered like a very small detail because that's the thing about the scroll of Esther is that everything looks to be these random events, like just happens to be that, oh, there was a plot at Mordechai because he was a member of the Sanhedrin and understood 70 languages. He happened to hear them. So he reported it because that was his position. He was a guard in the king's gate and all these things that are happening. So, so they they tell him, yeah, there was a, something that happened. And then all of a sudden the king says, was Mordechai ever rewarded for that? I say, no. Just at that moment, Haman is coming to ask permission to hang Mordechai. And so he's outside. And the king says, who's that out there? And they say, it's Haman. So he says, let him come. So Haman's coming and he's like, just bloated with his, <laughs> with his conceit, right? He could hardly walk. He's like a balloon, Right of conceit. So before he could even say anything, uh, Ahasuerus says, so what do you think I should do with somebody who deserves to be honored? And Haman, of course, there's only one person in the world that deserves to be honored, and that's me. So Haman says, uh, you know, take him and dress him in royal attire that the king, that the king dressed in, and a crown and, and a decorated horse, and take him through the city streets have a, a very high officer take him through the city streets saying, this is how the king honors his favorite ones. And uh, then uh, the king says, that's a very, very good idea. Take, take all of those things and do that right now to Mordechai, the Jew. 
in the meantime, uh, he's getting upset and his family is telling him this, this, this doesn't look so good after all. Haman is humiliated. In the meantime, right away, the couriers again rush, pick him up, escort him back to the palace, to the second banquet. And again, the king says, what is it that you want? And this time Esther says, I'm pleading for my life and the life of my people because we've been condemned to death by a very, very evil man. And, and, and Ahasuerus says, who could do such a thing? And Esther says, this man sitting right here, the king is just furious in a rage. Yeah, of course, he, he's just, he gets up and he goes, he goes out to his garden to cool off for a minute. And then Haman uh, realizes the jig is up and either he trips or he, on purpose, he basically is lying on the couch of Esther. You know, in those days there, they have these beautiful couches that they recline on. Uh, when they're eating these meals. And so uh, um, Ahasuerus comes back in and it doesn't look good what's going on there. So so uh, somebody says, and he says, what, you also want to conquer the queen with me here in the house? And so someone whose name is Harvona, one of the king's uh, advisors, advisors or, yeah. he, he suddenly appears and says, and, and by the way, there's a gallows that Haman made for Mordechai, the Jew, 50, 50 uh, cubits high, and uh, Ahasuerus says, hang him on it. And Harvona actually, who was he? Who was that mystery man? Is another story altogether. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, Esther pleads for her people, but Ahasuerus explains that uh, once a kingly uh, royal decree is made, uh, he can't even revoke it. So instead, they have to make a new pronouncement, permitting the Jews to arm themselves and, and uh, defend themselves on the 13th of Adar. So um, that's what happened. And uh, Megillah explains that, that um, they did have to fight for their lives from those people who still chose to uh, fight against them. And uh, it took an, a second day in the walled capital city of Shushan, the battle, this battle for Jewish, for Jewish survival. This was the creation of the holidays of Purim, which are celebrated, uh, as the story tells us, also with acts of selflessness and loving kindness, celebrated by also, uh, in addition to recalling the story, uh, we also have a festive meal. We also give gifts to the poor. We also give gifts of food to our neighbors. This is all, as we told it, on a very, very simple level. As I mentioned, there's a tremendous amount of, um, of depth and I'd like everyone to avail themselves of, of this beautiful class of my, my holy wives. But in addition to that, Jim, for example, you know, there's this idea that, that, that there are so many levels of meaning here. And, and um, I, I really strongly suggest that everyone um, learns, you know, studies the scroll of Esther with, for example, the art scroll anthology has a beautiful uh, commentary of, uh, of Midrashim uh, on, um, on these verses. You know, there's a tradition that when it says in the scroll of Esther, when it says King Ahasuerus, it's talking about King Ahasuerus, but there are, there are many times when the verse just says the king. The king, and it's the, the king of kings. And that actually, that actually many times is actually an allusion yeah, to, to, to the king of kings, to Hashem. So for right. example, when Esther says, you know, the king hasn't called me for 30 days, mm -hmm. she's really talking about her own feeling of alienation from Hashem. She's talking about her own feeling of inadequacy and anxiety, like, who am I? It's like, go to Hashem with my request. And so there's so many levels of meaning. And well, when we 
Okay, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying that I, what what I find so fulfilling, and and this is uh, uh, th- this is a book in in the Tanakh that is um, is overflowing with with meaning and levels of meanings, and the the idea, the whole theme of 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 uh, hiddenness and concealment and mask and unmasking and. Uh, dressing things up and and undressing things it's all and everything there turning around everything it, turning it, around it's and, so contemporary also jim because we're all going through such incredible such an, we're in a maelstrom mm-hmm. all of us we're, we're we're being pulled by these forces and there's such existential angst that people are feeling be, uh, being buffeted about by these malignant forces there's there, there there's so many different things going on that seem to be vying for control. And we also sometimes feel that Hashem's presence is hidden. It's, it, are we abandoned? God forbid. Right. And, 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 but the thing about the story of, of Purim is that when you look at it from a, from a bird's eye view, you look at all of these details, they come together. And, right. and, and the story is, it almost reads like a parody yeah. of a person's doubt. Because, and, and, and it's not a coincidence. First of all, Purim is the holiday that teaches us that, that there is no coincidence, that nothing happens by accident. But the, the whole idea about, you know, this force of Amalek, and that, as you and I have discussed it, Amalek is the numerical equivalent, the gematria of the word safik, which means doubt. That, that we have this perpetual war against the spirit of Amalek. And, you know, we, we, we talked about this, you know, for Shabbat, Parshat Zachor, how, you know, we have those verses, those difficult verses in Deuteronomy and, and also in Parshat B'Shalak and Shmo, where Hashem says that it's his, it's his pledge, you know, it's his oath forever that he will fight and that we have to obliterate the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. We have to understand that, that, that it, the spirit of Amalek begins in our own minds, you know, it's the root of all evil because it's an illusion. All evil is an illusion. And we are constantly fighting this war where there is this creeping doubt and it makes us feel that we are uh, alone in the world. And, and that's why Purim, on that deep, deep uh, mystical level of knowledge that we were speaking about earlier, well, that's why Purim is, is said to be the only holiday that will continue forever, even when all of the, the light of all the other holidays is no longer necessary because the world will have been redeemed. Purim will continue because Purim is a revelation of this level of joy. Right? You, you know that Purim is... is um, is parallel to the idea of joy, right? Commensurate. It's, it's the it's the synonym of joy, right? When Adar enters, we 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 become so so joyful. Purim is this incredible level of joy. But what is that joy? What is the secret? The secret is the fact that though Hashem's presence is hidden, His concern for this world, His intimate involvement with this world, His orchestration of everything, even the most mundane events, is so constant and 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 that's why even yom hakippurim even yom kippur it pales compared to the light of purim because because look uh, this idea about how, how purim outweighs all the other holidays let's look at it this way passover right the miracles of the exodus the miracles of the 10 plagues the miracles of splitting of the sea that was all like miracles that were like above nature supernature right but the miracles of purim are within nature See, concealed within the everyday experience, and that's higher. It's higher when Hashem has to break the bank and manifest Himself with tremendous power 
and magnificence. Okay, everybody looks and says, wow, that's a miracle. But is it a miracle when these things happen that just seem to be happenstance? That's the greatest miracle of all. Yeah. And that's the beauty of our lives. Hashem's presence is hidden in everything. So it's just like you say, everything is in disguise. I got to tell you, you know, there's this custom, beautiful tradition on Purim that we dress up. Uh, children children uh, love to masquerade on Purim. It's a, it's a very big feature of the holiday. Uh, so, you know, the, the kids, the girls dress up as Queen Esther and the boys dressed up as Mordechai and the high priest or they dress up as policemen. They, uh, they dress up and also the more creative kids, more creative parents maybe, they're very innovative <laughs> what, they, how they, what they dress up like. Well, what is it all about? So first of all, on a simple level, again, it's because, it's because um, Hashem's you know, presence is hidden, right? And everything really that happens in the story is in disguise. But you know something on a deep level? We're always in disguise. We really are always in disguise when we face off with each other. Besides the fact that we're all wearing masks now, we're always in disguise. We never let anybody know who we really are. We're always afraid. And on Purim, you know why we wear a mask? It's like, because you can be whatever you want to be. You can actually be anything and you can manifest your, your your truth, your mm-hmm. truth that's inside you is, I think, is what that custom is really supposed to be. I told you earlier that when I was reading the rereading Megillah in preparation for today's show, that suddenly these remarkable parallels about what's going on in today's world that I, I totally wasn't expecting suddenly began to show up. And you, you just mentioned right there, you just described social media. People are hidden in social media, and and we're seeing in, in a bad way, the way the social media allows people to literally reveal how great they are, or really in, in so many cases these days, how terrible a lot of people are, because they will absolutely say anything that they think they can get away with via social media. And th- this is this is that that hiddenness that you talked about that and and uh, the 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 Purim celebration but that one thing i i really wanted to to uh uh discover and to explore was was some of these hiddenness and i i wanted to 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 start this off and then you know i'll hand it back to you because i've got uh, i think we may have to do a two-part show I don't know. <laughs> I've got so many notes here, but there's a couple of things I really, really want to want to share with with you and the audience. And I know a lot of this, these things you're aware of already. And that is, is that how uh, if we go to Isaiah, we we see the uh, a kind of for uh, taste or a uh, a kind of um, picture, a preview of what's going to happen at Purim. And it's all set up with Isaiah talking about Cyrus, because uh, isn't there a saying from the sages that every time that uh, there is a judgment coming from Hashem or there is some sort of uh, terrible thing that's going to happen, that Hashem always prepares the remedy ahead of time. And he does this with the ascension of the Persian Cyrus to the throne of power and setting up for him becoming the ruler of the world. And one of those things is, it's even alluded to in Isaiah uh, 44, 28, when he prophesies, when Isaiah prophesies the the coming of Cyrus the Great as a a kind of redeemer. In fact, he, in, in 45, 8, 
He is called Mashiach. He says, he's my anointed. And the word there is Mashiach, and he's my redeemer. And here's a, here's a key phrase. If you read 45.3 in Isaiah, he says, he's speaking to, to, to this figure who's, who's called Cyrus, a.k.a. Koresh, which is his real Persian name. Uh, Isaiah says, this is God speaking to, to Koresh, I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches in secret places. Isn't this wonderful? He's talking about secrets and hiddenness and treasures and riches. Rabbi, what riches is he talking about? He's talking about the temple treasures. He's also talking about what made Persia so rich and what later enriched Ahasuerus, the Persian king who ruled at the time of the story of Esther, in that Cyrus became rich because when he conquered the Babylonian Empire, he inherited all of the riches of Nebuchadnezzar, who was called the head of gold. And the, the sages tell us that before uh, Nebuchadnezzar died, he hid away many of his riches. Uh, around the area near Persopolis and Shushan and near the near the Euphrates River, and even went to the extent of of putting some of them in copper barges and sinking in the them. river. Right. In the river, and so this those is, are the temple treasures. The temple are the, treasures. These the are the temple, temple treasures, and this this sets up where all these riches are going to be saved until they're used in this story of Esther, of Haman and Asperos. And, you know, I was asking my friend Isaac Moses, and I said, you know, I, I've read a lot of commentaries, and they never can really agree on what Asperos means. We know it's not really the name of the Persian king, because you don't find it in any of the Persian annals. The Persian king in the, in the Persian annals is called Artakshastra, and that is the Persian word for the ruler. It's like Pharaoh. And it, it means something like he who perfects the kingdom. It can also mean uh, the, the, the long arm of the king. But Isaac says, yes, Ahasuerus has the word head in it, but the prefix Ahashve can be roughly translated to unthinking, as in an unthinking head. Uh, and, of course, as, as the head of the empire, he's an un, unthinking head. And, of course, the first mistake he made by not thinking things through because the man was not ruled by his head. He was ruled by his heart. As you pointed out, he's, he was a, he was this person who was given to, to changing his mind on a dime. He miscalculated the 70 years because he, he calculated the 70 years from Jeremiah at the, at the first uh, intrusion, the first attack by Bavel when Nebuchadnezzar became ruler and they took away um Jehoiakim, when they took away Jehoiakim to Bavel, and of course with him were taken Daniel and Mordechai as, as young people, that's when um, Ahasuerus and his court decided that's where the 70 years began. And in reality, they were, they were only 56 years of that 70 had actually elapsed, because when do we really count the 70 years from? When does that really start? From the Kherban. In 3338, with the destruction of the Holy Temple of, of, of Israel. And, you know, Cyrus, I just want to point out, Cyrus, yeah. actually, he was no, he was no tzaddik, because he, he originally gave 
the proclamation that the, the Jews could return and rebuild the temple. But ultimately, he actually worked against his own proclamation. At one point, he actually um, he began to limit the amount of Jews that uh, he allowed to leave Babylon, and then he stopped it altogether. So he gave, he gave permission, but it was half-hearted. And, and, um, and so that's just the, the, the background there. Yes, Isaiah paraphrases and, and borrows and the term there. And Hashem says there, he, he, calls, he calls Cyrus my anointed one, my Mashiach. Mm-hmm. And I've always used that verse to point out to people some aspect of the concept of Mashiach in the Hebrew scriptures that it's about potential. In other words, he was not Mashiach. He was not, he was not even Jewish. He was not a descendant of King David. The idea is Hashem is saying that he instilled in Cyrus a potential spirit to be part of the process of the Messianic redemption, a stage, an important stage. And that of course he actually, um, uh, missed the opportunity and it was Esther's son, Daryavish. Darius, mm-hmm. who was her son with Achashverosh, that ultimately um, paved the way for the building of the temple. Yeah, you know, and this big feast, this big Mardi Gras, this six-month, uh, uh, almost a, an orgy of drink and food and everything, a lot of people, you know, you mentioned the number of, of his captains and his governors and the satraps who came. You 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 named it at around, what, ten, roughly t- almost 10,000? It's actually 8,000. 18,500. 18,500. No, no, those were the residents of Shushan. Right. And, and what's amazing is that, that uh, Shushan, which is also by, by secular uh, scholars, is called Susa. But it's the same city. And the, the, later, the later capital was Persopolis. And so the two are, are connected by way of, the, of them being uh, one is sort of a winter palace and the other is a summer palace. What it, when you go to the ruins of Shushan today, all when you begin to walk through the ruins and you you can walk through it with the book of Esther, Rabbi, and, and, and you can almost point out where every event of the Megala Esther actually took place. And this wow. this area, this palace that was uh, that was the site of this this six month celebration was was uh, was uh, they measured it. And it, it's, by the way, it's called, the ruins of it are called the, the Apadna. And the Apadna, according to scholars who are not, you know, Hebrew scholars, to, to archaeologists and historians, the, the Apadna could easily accommodate 10 to 15,000 guests. That's how massive this, this, this area for, and by the way, it was two stories high. It had an upper and lower level. And if anybody thinks that that uh, the idea of these golden couches and these silver tables, uh, when you read the Greek histories who speak of the Persian rulers like Herodotus, Herodotus talks about even when the, the, the Persian rulers would travel with their, their entourage and all of these tents, the tents would be full of, of golden couches and silver tables. So we we even have we even have that historical aspect confirmed, and the um, um, the thing that I find really interesting is that when Haman speaks up, and this is a hint for people to listen to about present day, when Haman speaks up out of turn, by the way, when the when when the Vashti refuses to come, 
Uh, and he and and it was he, he was actually the least of all the advisors, and yet exactly. he was the first one. He was the least considered. There in that in that verse, he's called Memuchan. Memuchan, exactly. It's actually, a play on words, the, a contraction of Mumkan, which means there is a blemish here. Yes, and he, that that's how the verse is alluding to him. There, this the one who was listed last is the yes. first one who spoke. And he was so aggressive in in, in wanting to put forth. It shows you how he was just overweening and like almost like the kid. Self-promotion. like the kid in class who goes, I know the answer, you know, like, and he speaks up out of turn. He says, you can't get, you you can't let Vasya get away with this and you need to put her away and you need to issue a proclamation. He, he basically says, you don't even need to consult with us. You don't need to consult with the courts because, you know, the king didn't handle every matter. He handled matters of national interest, but he still would consult and say, what do the judges and what do the lawyers and what do the, those who know the laws and the times, what do they say? And then he would rule according to, to their wisdom. But he didn't do that in this case. He says, oh, so this was an executive order. Yes, he signed an executive order. That's what Haman said to do. Okay, he said, I can relate to that. Just ignore all this and you sign a proclamation and you send it out all over the land. And and just just cut through the red tape. So he said, sign an executive order. Isn't that interesting? And and also by doing that, by doing that, he and, and, and it says in one commentary that the nobles willingly went along with it. And the reason, of course, is because they're they're already impressed by this massive celebration of riches that is put on so by basically the, it's about the massive celebration of riches was basically um, what do they call it? Um, it bells PR. and whistles. It was PR. In, it was yes. It was well, PR. It was, yeah. What it, was, what it was? You 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 named it right because what he was doing is again the parallels. It was from like modern. pyrotechnics. Yeah. Also, it was a it was it was fake news. It was a way of saying, you know what? I'm so rich that I believe in the the redistribution of wealth, and I'm going to share oh it goodness, with. Jim. I'm going to share all it with all of it with you. Right now, because they, they wouldn't even wash the dishes. They would just give them a new you'll cup. You'll have nothing and you'll be happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because they all had to go back to their little humble homes after the party was over. So it was his way of saying, look how generous I am. Look how your government's going to take care of you. And so what what is also very interesting about this on an historical note is that I mentioned Persopolis. Persopolis, when it was exhumed, it was the other palace. They found 30,000 clay tablets written mostly in cuneiform, but in the in the, the, the Elamite language and in the Aramaic language and some Greek and others, but always written in cuneiform. And the these tablets, 30,000 clay tablets speak of from the mundane to the historical aspects of ancient Persia and go back to the time of this king of Ahasuerus, who, who was called by another name. And among those correspondence and among those documents, legal documents, administrative records, there's one set called the fortification tablets. And do you remember when you re we read the, the uh, verse 114, we see the names in the Megillah of, of uh, counselors named Meres, Marsena, Memuchan, those are listed on the fortification tablets. Wow. Also, amazing, also, also mentioned are four different people in the fortification tablets. There are four different figures in history called Mordechai. And there's even a record of a Mordechai of a very high status 
who was an official of the court living in Susa, a.k.a. Shushan, who was sent out uh, to investigate a matter outside the city. So we have these names in, in the written histories of the ancient Persian Empire. So what, what I love about it, again, I hope people see the, the, the parallels. It, it, when he says, according to the law, it's basically, no, not according to the law, because the king was not above the law. Even though he, he could sign a law into, into practice, he's saying, you know, the king didn't litigate everything. And so Memokan, a.k.a. Haman's suggestion, would prohibit this judicial system from moving through its um, its its normal course of, of the court's ruling. And I think it's also interesting that that when we know that Vashti, it doesn't say this directly in the text that Mashi was put to death, but all of the commentaries say that she was put to death. In fact, what everything that happened to her was was uh, mida keneged mida. It was measure for measure, because she made the Jewish servant girls uh, work in a state of undress. She was shamed by, by being forced to come before this huge, massive party of, among all the people and appear undressed. And by the way, this was on a Shabbat. Yes. This was on a Shabbat. There's a lot more backstory about Avashti because as the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, she took very great pride in the fact that her forebears had destroyed the Holy Temple. Exactly. And even... And, and, and apparently, according to at least one Midrash, Ahasuerush was um, vacillating and considering that possibly he should allow the, the building of the temple. And she said to him, what? That which my father's destroyed, you want to build? And so she, she basically wanted to perpetuate the destruction of the temple. And that's also why she was, she was um, punished according to this understanding. Now, when they, that whole party, that whole party was about was about a, making a mockery of it was a it was a big and it was also a big PR stunt. And you it mentioned it, all of the treasures that were brought out. I just right. want to point out also that in the in the very beginning of the of the scroll, in the first chapter in verse seven, we read the drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of divorce of diverse form. Right. The, the expression is vikelim mikelim shonim, which means various types of vessels there is a, a tradition that when that those words are intoned in the synagogue when the scroll is read suddenly the reader switches the melody to the melody that is used for the scroll of lamentations on tisha b'av which is a very very plaintive and uh, like a kind of like a wail it's like a very mournful tune so he just sings those three words with that tune, because those those words are a direct reference to the mockery that was made of the vessels from the Holy Temple that were being used at this pagan banquet. Amen. And every yeah, time, the, the, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say every time, every time these proclamations are issued, especially the one that that Haman had suggested that the king issue with his seal of his ring. Then we this this calls to mind the Persian postal postal system which historically was one of the most amazing postal systems of the ancient world. You know, we hear about the writers being dispatched to the four corners of the compass. This was created by King Cyrus, by Koresh. And it, they, they had relay stations stretching across the empire for, for 1,500, almost 1,600 miles across, across the entire empire. And so they would be dispatched, and it was a kind of, a kind of ancient um, Pony Express, if you will. 
but but very rapid and 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 Persian history actually supports the idea of these writers being sent out with uh, with all of these things with with these messages of these proclamations, and th this is the mechanism this 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 executive order and this this uh, this uh, Persian Pony Express that will be used again in, later in the narrative against the enemies of of the Jewish people. And uh, I was looking. I was looking at uh, the background of Esther, who's we, we know her. Her real name was Hadassah. 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 And the the idea of her being called Esther, if you look at the the historical ramifications of that, she probably was was characterized as as Esther by the people of of Shushan because of her beauty, because Ishtar was was the venus of the mesopotamian religions so she's likened to ishtar which is where the the populace probably got got the name you know they didn't know esther meant hidden so they they call this young jewish girl hadassah they call her they call her after ishtar and by the way mordecai or possibly alternatively we are we are told the scroll is recording her name as esther because she was in disguise and yes she was not and because her, she did keep her identity, and that, and because she, and because her era was the fulfillment of that verse in Deuteronomy of Hashem saying, "There's going to come a time when I'm going to hide my face." Right, right. And and the the idea that that uh, a Mordecai's ascendance uh, into the the halls of of you know rule and honor and all that. Uh, again, his name uh, th that name uh, appears on the in Akkadi and on these Babylonian. And these Persian tablets, and a lot of people wonder, well, why was he called Mordecai? Well, don't forget when Daniel and his his uh, compatriots were brought to Babel, their names were also changed. I think what was Daniel's uh, Babylonian name? Bel Belteshazzar, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Mordecai, which sounds very much like almost like a Persian uh, deity, Marduk. Uh, he may have been bestowed that name by the by the populace. And his name, according to my research, his Hebrew name may have been, um, I'm trying to find his name. Oh, uh, Pesachah or Bilshan is what some of the sources say might have been his Hebrew name. He was a Benjamite. He'd come from the tribe of Benjamin, which, of course, who was of the tribe of Benjamin that didn't take care of business that actually led to this? King Saul. King Saul. All right. And he was the one that, and of course, his what helped his ascent to the halls of, of the uh, the judges was uncovering this assassination plot being uh, plotted by uh, it was Big Thon and, and Therese. Teresh. OK, B Teresh and Big Thon is a name also found on the Persian fortification tablets. So that name is is not unknown to people. And the gate the gate that he sat on, sat in with the other elders, is is not just some little, you know, uh, entryway. In the Shushan expeditions of the ancient city of Shushan that had been going on for a century, they found the main gate that the elders sat in. It was thirteen thousand square feet of room, 40, 43 feet high. It had three huge, voluminous rooms, four collars. And uh, along with all of these other items that they found uh, around uh, uh, Shushan, they all are consistent with the narrative of Esther. So for people who say that the who historians who say that uh, Esther didn't happen, 
it's kind of like it's kind of like saying, well, I read Gone with the Wind and I know that, um, you know, um, Scarlet isn't real and that, you know, her her lover um, isn't real. But the Civil War was real. The Atlanta was real. The burning of Atlanta. And there there is a an interesting thing when uh, she, uh, Mordecai warns Esther not to reveal uh, her nationality to the king or to anyone. Um she was really chosen for one thing by the king, and that is her beauty. And that's one of the reasons, not, not all of them, but that's one of the reasons that he warned her not to reveal her, because, because the point is they didn't even want it to become a political reason. They knew the king, and they thought they're going to just, they're going to let it default to the fact that he is a, you know, he has a roving eye, the king does, and that we know he's going to choose Esther, because, because Esther was actually chosen by uh, Haggai, who who groomed her in in the uh, the harem, because he, he 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 immediately caught her eye, not because of her beauty, but because of her wisdom, and her and her bearing. There was a nobility about her that suggested because she of was chain, her grace, she her had, grace. She, had a certain, she it was a she, divine grace. It was she, a divine quality that shone from her. It was Hashem's light that shone from her. It wasn't about her physical beauty. Exactly. But what we see happening is is this plot that is that is cultivated by Haman. He goes to the king. He doesn't even mention the Jewish people. He says there is a certain people in your kingdom. And they have all these holidays that keeps them from working as much as they should. They don't like to pay their taxes. Uh, they don't. They don't. They have their own set of laws that, that that they go by. And he says, you know, basically, you need to. I wouldn't even take this to the courts. You need to do this on your own. You need to write an executive order and make a proclamation that we can get rid of these people because they're a hindrance. And so he, he's basically saying, you know, they're not politically correct people. They're, they're not people who, um, you know, they're – I know you want to say something, and I'm going to let you. <laughs> I know what you want to say. You, you want to say that this is basically a, an early manifestation of cancel culture. Exactly. In, in the they're worst like extreme – yeah. in the most extreme way. Because when you dehumanize a, a person or a people, the next step is to literally get rid of them physically. And that was it. And all of these themes just, they, they, they reverberate these themes of, of, of political power, manipulation, exploitation. And it's hard also, um, first of all, it's hard not to think about what's going on in the world today as far as what's trending as far as campaigns of fear and intimidation and and um, the negation of a lot of basic civil human rights. But besides that, there's also, uh, it's, it's hard to not consider the uh, irony or the blatant uh, realism of the fact that uh, one of the greatest threats facing the Jewish people today is from contemporary Iran. Yes. Which is totally predicated on destroying Israel. It makes no no um, excuses or, or, or doesn't pretend that, that is not the case, but, but boasts that uh, daily that that is the intention of the Islamic Republic of Iran is to destroy the Zionist entity, which is the state of Israel, which is the Jewish people. And of course... Um, this is an extension of uh, the ancient Persian Empire, shall we say? Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. And there's a couple of things I want to I want to share with with you and everybody else, because I know we're running out of out of time. I don't want us to run too long. But uh, we mentioned last week that um, that uh, the name of Haman appears exactly 54 times in the book of Esther. And what's interesting is, is that the uh, the phrase in uh, found there's a word found in Exodus 17, 14. The, the, the word is also found in Genesis 6 and 7. In, in Genesis 6, it talks about uh, obliterating uh, the people of the earth. And the, the word for obliterate is emche. And in, in Exodus 7, 17, 14, it speaks about uh, obliterating the name of, of Amalek. And it uses the, the word em, uh, emche. The gematria, the numerical value of the gematria is 54. The same number of times that the, the, the name mm-hmm. Haman appears in the, the scroll of Esther. And and uh, just a couple of other real quick things. Uh, Dariavash, Darius, who who is the son of Esther, all the sages tell us that. History does not agree with that because they don't agree with the story of Esther. But the sages tell us that, that Dariavash, Darius the Great, was the son of Esther. He has a great pedigree because, first of all, he was the he was the the he's called Darius the Great because he was the greatest of the Persian kings. And by the way, did you know, Rabbi, that Darius was known as a monotheist? Really? Yes. Secondly, uh, he made Aramaic the official language of the Persian Empire when, when he became king. On an inscription in in modern day Iran, we talked about this last year. There is a an inscription called the Behistun inscription, and it is a it is a massive inscription. It's a bas relief showing figures, showing the king. It shows it's also these giant letters of cuneiform that tell what happened during the time that he took power, Darius the Great, the son of Esther. In this in this cuneiform uh, narrative, it speaks of a um um. A, a rebellion that broke out previous to him taking taking the throne, and the 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 uh, uh, rebellion broke out during the previous king, who's called on the Persians' list Cambyses or Cambusia in Persian, Cambusia, and Cambusia uh, had to deal with this uh, this rebellion that broke out, and it continued. By the way, that. And by the way, the date given for the uh, rebellion breaking out is the date of Purim. It was the 13th of Adar. Wow. That's on this inscription. Now, he would have. That's it, so fascinating. It, this is across the entire Persian Empire. So you have pockets of rebellion still fighting with the Jewish people, even by the time that, that Dariavesh takes the throne. And you know what, what Darius did? It says he put down the rebellion with the help of his six advisors, not seven. He usually had seven. The king of Persia usually had seven chamberlains. Why didn't Darius have seven chamberlains? Well, it doesn't say why on the inscription, but I think I can guess why there's only six chamberlains. Who was the missing one, I wonder? <laughs> Come on. Haman, Memochad was missing. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. So we have this in this, this inscription. And, 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 by, and by the way, the inscription actually doesn't have the date of the of the 13th. It has the date of the 14th, which is when we celebrate Purim. 
And that is the date commemorated on the uh, the inscription. Now, one more thing about, and I'm going to shut up, I promise, is this idea of hiddenness is so pervasive in the story of Esther in that the reason that we have so much confusion today as to who the real king of the Esther story is, and the reason that the, the dates are in question, and the, the reason that if you look at the it's the narrative that passed down through Seder HaOlam, the Jewish chronology, which says there were five kings between Cyrus up to the time of Alexander the Great conquering the Persians, and secular history saying there were 14 kings, is because the Greeks decided they were going to change history. And they, and they tried to artificially expand the length of the Persian Empire, and they tried to make it look like that when Alexander took over, the Persians were completely vanquished as a people, which they were not. They continued on. They had governors who ruled under Alexander the Great. But this is a great lie. It's a revision of history. We're seeing that in our own country today here in America. They're trying to rewrite history today. That's the other parallel to the Megillah Esther. The hiddenness is the fact that what happened is, is that the Greeks tried to hide the story of Purim. They tried to hide the story of, of these five kings. Yet we have archaeological proof that there were five kings from Cyrus up until Alexander. It is consistent with the Jewish reckoning of history. It has five kings on it. It's called the, uh, it's called the Tablet of Uruk. And it, it shows five kings ruling from uh, Cyrus until Alexander conquers the Persian Empire. And if you don't think I'm making this up about the Greeks trying to change history, let me quote a guy by the name of Sir Isaac Newton, who said the Greeks schemed to rewrite history, shifting the entire Persian period in time, making it seem to come to a complete stop with the rise of Alexander the Great. And then they added over 150 years to their history. By the way, hmm. Rabbi, the difference between Seder HaOlam, the Jewish chronology of history, and secular history is about 150 to 165 years. More hiddenness, more covered up things from Absolutely Esther. Absolutely amazing, Jim. I'd like to leave our, our listeners with a couple of thoughts. First of all, those that are listening in time uh, and are able to participate and are inclined to participate in the fast of Esther that we observe Thursday, the 25th of February, um, should, should be, feel welcome to do so. It's a very holy day. The fast of Esther is a, a day of tremendous spiritual power. It's a special day for prayer. It is um, a minor fast, of course, in, in terms of the Torah's fast days, but yet it, it has a, a tremendous um, legacy of, um, of, of prayer being offered and answered. This is a, a time of, of tremendous upheaval uh, all over the world. It's a time of, of, a, of a hiddenness, really. It's a time of Hashem's presence that we really need to reveal. It's a time of distress for a lot of people. And so it's a, a be beautiful thing to participate in this and know that there are people all over the world that are going to be crying out to Hashem the same day. 
those who are able to fast, who have the stamina, the constitution, and are healthy and can fast, um, that's a very praiseworthy thing because fasting, as we've discussed, can bring a person to a higher consciousness and a higher level of motivation and feeling to the needs for repentance and, and crying out to Hashem because it's basically a day for repentance. But even those who are not inclined to fast are still invited and reminded, I want to encourage everyone to to really try to find some private time on that day, the fast of Esther, and uh, some time for meditation, some time for reflection for the recitation of Psalms, for crying out from the heart privately to Hashem in our own words, because it's a really, it's a day of tremendous spiritual portent and tremendous spiritual power for cleansing. And uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, bridge to the days of Purim and about Purim. I just want to remind everybody again that, um, again, this, as you've pointed out, we've been discussing, there's so much going on in the Megillah that reverberates with our contemporary reality. But the main thing is um, that Hashem is, His presence is disguised. It's always in disguise. We want to see past that. We want to um, be reminded that every moment um, of our lives is an opportunity for closeness with Hashem. And, um, that everything that appears one way can suddenly turn around. And uh, that is truly the secret of, of Purim joy, that revelation, that, that high understanding that's really a reflection of the rectified world that's yet to come, that, that, that light that shines forever, that understanding of that everything that's going on, even in the most mundane level in our lives right now, is orchestrated by Hashem's compassion for us and will ultimately be shown to be an, another manifestation of Hashem's great love for all of us. Rabbi, before we wrap up and before I, I say my goodbye to you and vice versa, I, there's, there's just a, a couple of more things I want to share. One is uh, this, this wonderful verse in Esther where it shows us that the name of Hashem is there, but it's hidden away. And it's in Esther 5.4. In Hebrew, it's it's Yavo uh, Hamelik Vehaman Hayom. Let the king and Haman come today. And if you go back and read that in Hebrew, the beginning letter of each of those words spells out Yud K Vav K, the the holy name of Hashem. Now, the other thing I want to point out is is that we didn't mention. I, I alluded to it. We I didn't mention the 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 person who I am convinced is the Persian king who is the Ahasuerus of the Megillah story. And I believe he's a king who is called Cambyses. And I'll quickly give you why very quickly. First of all, in, in the lineup of kings in Persian history, he is the one who immediately came to rule when Cyrus died. And, and in the biblical narrative, that's when things begin to go downhill. And that's when the construction uh, finally comes to a complete halt while this new king rises to power. And Cambyses is the king who comes to power after um, Cyrus dies. Secondly, Cyrus is known all the way back to the Greeks for one thing. He was nuts. He was crazed. You couldn't trust him. Herodotus really wraps up by saying uh, Cambyses was basically crazy. And if you don't believe he's not the, the king of Esther, let me tell you something else about Cambyses that we know. Cambyses murdered his first wife. He had her put to oh death. Goodness. He had his first wife put to death for for the most. Uh, for, she, one one version says she was peeling an orange, and he didn't like the way she was doing it. And another, there's three or four versions. The point is, he had her put to death by the courts. 
So that's consistent with the, 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 the Esther story. Secondly, he remarries, and he stays married to a woman that the, the Persian history calls Hatosa. Oh, my goodness. And she is, known, she is known throughout Persian history for a couple of things. Uh, and I'm amazed when scholars don't even look at Hatosa because she's married to this guy that murdered his first wife. The only Persian ruler who ever did that, by the way. And Hatosa was known for her, her, her physical beauty. It was, she was supposed to be stunning. And secondly, she was also known for something very unusual for a, a Persian uh, queen. She was very well educated. And, you know, Esther grew up with the greatest teacher in, in the city of Sushan, was her, her, her uh, husband slash cousin, Mordecai. So I wanted to share those things with you. And first of all, and also I, I, have, I have two shelves of books on commentaries on Esther. But I, if, if folks are, are, are fascinated with our backstory we gave today, I want to recommend three or four books real quickly. And one of them is the, um, uh, the chronology. The, the, it's called Codex Judaica. And it is the Seder HaOlam in narrative form. And it has, it has all the real dates of all of these events that we have talked about today. Also, um, this one called Persia, and, a Purim in the Persian Empire by Yehuda Landi. And also a wonderful book by my friend Alexander Hull called The Challenge of Jewish History. And he shows you who the real king is and, and sh brings proof, uh, archaeological proof that Cambyses was the king. And he also, he also takes and resolves all of the chronological problems and ties them up very nicely. And then I have all of these commentaries, but the one that really, really was so helpful to me is a new commentary. Uh, called the Vilna Gaon on Megillah Esther, and uh, I, I urge you to pick any of the any of the commentaries are wonderful, and I drew from all of those. And uh, when the rabbi likes to talk about my um, my knowledge, it's because uh, the Jewish sages have provided us a wealth of knowledge, and I continually go to it to draw from and to share back with all of you. So, Jim, I want to wish you a beautiful Purim and all of our listeners. May we merit to the true revelation of joy, of what the secret of joy of Purim, that, that Hashem's presence is always with us behind the scenes, in the scenes, and will be revealed. And again, the opportunity for, for deepening that closeness is presented to us, uh, to us in, a, in a very unique way on Purim, this, in a totally transcendental way. That is really the highest light of the year. And our um, fulfillment of these things during these days, our, our celebration, our, our happiness is literally a power that we release in the world that destroys the false gods false gods of power and Amalek and manipulation, our cling to Hashem, our clinging to Torah, our um, humility, our kindness, our willingness for self-sacrifice is what brings the light of the Shekhinah into the world. And may we really truly experience the, the joy of Purim and may we hear more and more good news and may we see all the parallels in our own lives in the Megillah also turning around and may all of these universal lessons really um, be applied to each and every one of us wish everyone a beautiful beautiful joyous Purim and Shalom Shalom Shalom